Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have a writer, Joe Jackson. He's an award-winning author of eight books. As a journalist, he's covered crime for the Virginia Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia, and he taught writing at, at one time at Old Dominion University. The book we'll be discussing with him today is Black Elk, The Life of the American Visionary. It won not one, but two prestigious prizes for biography, the Francis Parkman Award for the, from the American Society of Historians, and the Penn Jacqueline Bogard Weld Award for Biography. It was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2016. Joe, welcome to History 605. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, this is a wonderfully written book, um, not only because of your skill as a writer, but it's clear that you really respect Black Elk as a human being and that your respect extends as far as uh, taking the time to understand his spiritual views, which, as you write in the biography, change and develop quite a bit. And you give all those changes a fair airing. Um, not many writers know enough or seek to learn enough to know how to tackle a complex thing like religion, and you, you definitely give it its due. So I just wanted to compliment you on that. Well, thanks. Um, I think it's, uh, this book is so well regarded uh, because it does such a good job with that. So uh, well done. I didn't really start out thinking that, oh, I'm going to write another book about whites versus Indians. I mean, what I had done was that usually when I write a book, the next book will often be cleaning up unanswered questions from the previous one. Mm -hmm. So the previous book had been, I'd started around 2014, the Olympics were going on, and I was thinking, why why is America so competitive? And I thought, well, I'm going to write something about um, a a famous race. And um, I ended up writing about about um, the race, the air race that made Lindbergh famous. But I didn't want to write just about Lindbergh. I wanted to write yeah. about the losers. Yeah. Um, but um, you have to write about Lindbergh to a certain extent. Yeah. And um, what happened as I was writing that book was that it became obvious that the book was about the way that Americans create um, and destroy secular saints and heroes. And I thought mm. to myself, um, what, is it, what does it mean, then, for a culture, for a group of people to deem somebody um, holy? What, what, mm. what does that mean? And um, 
And I first was thinking about Thomas Merton, but there's oh. been a book written. There's yeah. been a book written about Thomas Merton about five or six years earlier. So I said, no, can't do that. Um, but then I remembered Black Elk Speaks, and I remembered that, and, and I'd read it either in high school or college, and it was one of my favorite um, favorite literary um, Western literary pieces, yeah. and um, and I remembered that. And near the end of the 20th century, that this college of theologians had, you know, been asked who were the most influential and important holy men in America in the 20th century, and they said, you know, many of them agreed that it was Black Elk. Yeah. Um, and I thought, now that isn't that really interesting? That is. <laughs> and and so I um, and so I started looking into that, and I um, and. Um, you know, I got really interested in it at that time. So it was really an investigation of, I mean, even though it's Black Elk's story, I mean, I always look at the individual. But it was that question, what what makes a bunch of people call somebody holy? Right. And, um, I don't know if I succeeded or not, but that's yeah. what I was going towards. Uh, you write, and I maybe this is a bit of a giveaway at the end, but I think one of your last lines is that uh, you write that Black Elk's life is a parable of modern man, and in that he's attempting to preserve his soul. Um, it's kind of an odd thing to say many modern men think they don't have a soul or, or don't have an afterlife, what, but that's not Black Elk's belief, is it? Uh, how would he have, um, as you walk through his, his biography, um, what would he think of that... Um, of that concept of modern man and uh, his, what his grandfathers taught him. Well, I, I mean, I think he would um, quietly disagree that um, that you know that there's no such thing as a soul in um, in the life of modern man. I would mm-hmm. think that he would say that soul is everything. That one. Um, one reaches into oneself to find out what is important and what is important for the people around you and um and that is what um you know makes uh creates an individual reality so um i mean for him i think that i think the preservation of the lakota um the Lakota soul, the Lakota identity was um, was was everything. I mean, um, his vision was everything. But the, <clears throat> later on, the preservation of the of a way of life was everything. Right. And I mean that that for him that was a very spiritual that was a spirit, very spiritual endeavor. Yes. Well, I wonder just to give a little bit of a background, if you can briefly kind of. Describe the arc of his life and maybe some of the major events, and then I think as we have our conversation, we'll kind of go into some of the details okay. of those of those things. Well, I mean, okay, so he was the um, in the pre Custer days. He was he was born in the eighteen sixties, um, and um, and he was the son and grandson of um, of a. Wakasa Walken, a, um, a a holy man, and um, a Lakota holy man, and I didn't know this when I started out. Yeah, that you pretty much um, adopted your father's name um, down the line, mm-hmm. and so he was like the third, or 
at least the second and probably the third, maybe the fourth blackout okay. um, from a fam- family of healers and, um, and holy men. So he was, bro- he was born into that, into that tradition, and it was, um, I guess, within his own mind as he started to grow up, it was expected that he was going to become a, a, um, you know, a, a holy man or at least a healer. Mm-hmm. But then um, when he was about nine years old, he fell de- deathly ill. Um, and his, uh, his clan and his family were on the way to... Um, one of the great conclaves um, the Lakotas always always had um, out towards the um, out towards the west, and um, he felt deathly ill, and it was very hard to tell what it was. It looked like it might have been some sort of childhood meningitis, but who can tell right. historically? And um, and he was in a coma for eleven days, and he wow. he thought that he um, his parents thought he was going to die. And during this 11 days, he had this extremely vivid dream or vision where he was taken into the clouds, taken to a kind of cloud, um, a separate cloud world, where he saw um, the six grandfathers, Mm -hmm. um, very much like um, Holy Spirits, and um, and he had these these visions where he was told by the grandfathers that his people were dying, and it was up to him to save his people, mm-hmm. and that um, and that he was it was and his vision was basically a Joseph Campbell type of quest before yeah. anybody really knew about <laughs> Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Um, he, um, you know, he went on a quest to find these, um, to to find these various artifacts, which would help him in his battle to save his people. He was um, he was told that he had to find two kinds of magical plants, um, the most deadly of which and the most controversial to him was something called the soldier soldier root. Okay, and he would come back from from that and he would grow into a um into you know kind of a savior for his people yeah but he was at odds because as he grew up he started seeing more and more things happening to his people and he did not know when or how he was supposed to start the process that he learned in his vision and he started to panic i mean there's a tradition that if you're anointed within Lakota culture, at least, that if you are um, anointed by the gods and you forsake it, then you're pretty much doomed. And so he had a, what we would call at one time a, a nervous breakdown. Today, I guess you would call it a panic attack. Yeah. His um, parents pretty much took him to a, um, an assembly of healers, and they started interviewing him, and they and the interviewers said were, were amazed at Black Elk's vision and his depth of spiritual and cultural understanding, yeah. and they told him that he was not only there to save his people, he was to save all people, which also meant the whites mm. who were uh, who were destroying the who were destroying the Lakota. Yeah, and so he um, 
he lived through the um, um, Battle of the Little Bighorn. Yeah. He grows to a to an age where he has to publicly dramatize his visions. He learns the ways of a healer and a holy man. Um, he wonders when he's supposed to, when everything's supposed to come together to save his people. He's present when Crazy Horse dies. He doesn't see Crazy Horse die, but he, he is present back in the crowd when Crazy Horse dies. Okay. And Crazy Horse is his second cousin. Okay. Um, and he goes, he, you know, he, he, he's kind of is thrown into despair in his, um, in his early, I mean, late teens and early 20s when he thinks he's supposed to be helping his people out. Yeah. Um, he starts to think that he, maybe he should learn maybe white culture, which is, seems to have co- conquered the Lakota, um, is more powerful. Um, than Lakota culture, Lakota religion, so he decides, when given a chance to go away on one of Buffalo Bill's um, mm-hmm. um, tours, he goes to New York and then to England and dances between before Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. and he comes back just in time to be present at the ghost dance and the um, massacre at Wounded Knee. And then he falls into despair. I mean, his, he is one of the principal healers at Pine Ridge, but he doesn't seem to be able to, to stop the despair and dying of his people. Yeah. And, he also, and his wife dies and his children die, all except for Ben and um, Ben Black Elk, his yeah. famous son. And, um, and he, he converts into Catholicism. He also has a bleeding ulcer, which is... Mm. giving him a lot of pain yeah. and um a, a fairly sympathetic catholic priest kind of takes him under his wing and um and he becomes a catholic layperson and he he converts within the, um the course of about a decade we're talking the 1910s to the 1920s um into the 1920s he converts across the united states Probably about 400 uh, Native Americans and Native Canadians into um, into Catholicism, yeah. but then he starts to lose that exclusive faith faith by the 1930s, and he's wondering whether or not he'll be able to save his people. But more than that, he wants to preserve his Indian culture. And that's when the poet John Nyhart comes along mm-hmm. and um, and takes down his, in a month of interviews, takes down his story, and, um, and he talks a lot about his vision. I mean, that's the, yeah. probably the main reason that Black Elk decided to, to do this book. Um, and that became Black Elk Speaks. Yeah. That's why he's famous now. And that's why he's famous now. Um, right. Well, that uh, brief synopsis is a very rich life, and there's a lot of things in there that that, uh, would kind of be points upon which to dwell, uh, and you do so in your book. I think the the run-up to, well, Little Bighorn, and he's a teenager there, and I think that's his first time in combat, and it's probably, well, and he, he, uh, you describe 
very vividly his description, and I think um, your sources are Black Elk Speaks and other other diaries uh, that were taken or transcripts that were taken that wind up being used by Nyhart for Black Elk Speaks, and so you kind of go back to the the primary source, if you will, um, or the or the copy of that conversation um, that was done by Nyhart's daughter. Those notes. Did you you have access to those? I had access to those. I mean, yeah. um, everything is is down in the um, Missouri State Archives. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's the um, Histor- Historical Society of Missouri yeah. in Columbia, and they are um, several uh, reporters notebooks, those ringed binders of Greg Shorthand. Well, okay. uh, I couldn't read Greg Shorthand, but luckily um, yeah. an ethnologist um, by the name of Raymond DeMalley had, yeah. had taken upon himself to, um, you know, to have those transcribed. And, and so, I mean, you know, there's a, um, there's a, a, there's a book that is well, thumb, well thumbed by me called The Sixth Grandfather, which is basically those, um, those rough transcripts. And, yeah. and you get a real sense of Black Elk's speech and also the rhythm of his thoughts. I mean, they are, they're rough notes. I mean, they're, they're hard reading sometimes because Black Elk repeats himself and he will dwell on something sometimes ad infinitum. And um, there were, um, and you got to realize that the whole process was rather um, labored. I mean, Nyhart would ask a question of Black Elk, um, sometimes been black elk understood english but not perfectly i don't think um ben would kind of help translate a little bit um black elk was certainly more comfortable in answering back in lakota um and so he would answer back in lakota ben would translate um nyhart would ask a a question to clarify something. We'd go back through Ben, back to Black Elk, back through Ben, back right, to right. Nyhart. And at that point, um, Nyhart's daughter would um, transcribe her note, the, um, his answer, in shorthand. Yeah. And so DeMalley, um translated all that, I meaning, you know, transcribed all of that. And it has, I mean, you know, I had been a um, reporter, and so I kind of know what these rough notes sound like and that's i mean that's what they were i mean yeah. they certainly need clean it cleaned up but yeah. i mean you know it's a valuable resource you've got a month nearly you know somewhere between a th- three weeks and and four weeks of interviews with this um with this lakota holy man that you know a college of theologians in the united states at the end of the 20th century said was probably you know the united states most significant holy man of that mm-hmm. of that century. I mean, you just don't get that very much, right. and um, and so you really um, that's what I really depended upon. Right. And so when he was talking about his, um, you know, his 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 battle of the Little Big Horn, I mean, I yeah. I depended upon that a lot. There was one other outside source. You know, he trapped this interesting little Italian count. Um, who rode with Custer um, in some brush, uh-huh. he and some of the other boys. And I forget the guy's name now, but I have it in the book. And um, they were like, you know, t- 
trying to burn the brush and, mm-hmm. and drive him out, but he he stayed in and he survived. He he had he he stayed with. He finally got to Reno, to Major Reno, atop the oh, okay. out on top, yeah. and um, and so you know the count later um, wrote about you know these boys who wouldn't <laughs> these awful boys who wouldn't out. leave him yeah. alone. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, there was some um, there was some confora- confirmation yeah. of the accounts. Yeah. Um, every now and then, there are little bits and pieces that come out that confirm Black Elk's story, but you have to look hard because until Black Elk Speaks came out, he wasn't a major historical figure. I mean, Crazy Horse was people sure. thought Crazy Horse a million times, but you had to look for confirmation. But yeah. it was there. But so. it, in your book, you go into this kind of horrific description of him um, killing a U.S. soldier and, and scalping him, um, and the experience of that as a teenage boy and, and in that culture. And it thickened him. I mean, you know, yeah. he did it, but yeah. it thickened him. I mean, I thought yeah. that was, and then he did it again. I mean, he, yeah. went, up that, um, he went up that ravine and, um, where um, a lot of um, Custer's, Custer's men tried to escape, and yeah. they were kind of like, you know, laying around, not all, you know, half dead, and he um, yeah. he shot one in the head, and yeah. maybe a maybe a third, and it just you know, it just really sickened him, and um, and I thought that was really important for his development. Right. I mean, you know, he was he he, he thought, I mean, he, you know, there was so much chaos and and yeah. so much bloodlust on both sides, and yeah. and you know the. Um, to the to Custer's men, the um, the Lakota and the Cheyenne were demons, and to the to the Lakota and the Cheyenne, Custer's men were demons. Right. And you know, so he was, you know, within within the kind confines of his um, culture, he was killing the enemy, but it still sickened him. Right. So I just thought that was really important. You you put in your book. There's a little bit of a discussion about kind of a way of war of the Lakota or a um, where they're trying to piece out the ethic of what they're doing and how they can change that uh, is described in your book. I wonder how did how did you kind of come across that? I'm pretty sure that I found that in the Marie Sandoz archives okay. down in um, Omaha. Yeah, and because you know she had researched so much for her Crazy Horse book. Yeah. And okay. um, and she had stumbled across that account of um, of runners going across the plains, saying, "How do we how do we consider these whites? Are, are they um, when we kill them? I mean, they've you know they'd already killed some whites, but I mean, are they human or not? And yeah. um, and so." Um, I just I just found that that really interesting that they would have this ethical discussion. I'm not sure that the, you know, it, it was interesting in the newspapers and diaries at least as far as the um, as far as the um, white American culture that was was you know rolling across the plains. The um, there were a lot of ethical discussions about killing Indians off, but right. in the Closer to the conflict, the newspapers were basically saying, "Just, just kill them all." Yeah. Farther away 
farther away from the conflict in New York, you know, they were saying, the newspapers, were, the editorial writers were saying, you know, we, these people are human beings. I mean, yes, yeah. it's, it's a war, but we can't, I don't think they had the word genocide at that time, but we can't wipe out a whole culture. Yeah. I mean, it was particularly interesting when I was going through a bunch of the Western newspapers, and Frank Oz, um, no, yeah. no, Frank Baum, Frank our, Baum, our yeah. Frank Baum, who wrote <laughs> The Wizard of Oz, right. you think, oh, this, you know, this humanistic gentle man, he was one of the, one of the main ones crying for all Indians to be wiped off the face of the earth, yeah. you know, so, I mean, I mean, it was a, um, it was definitely an example of of a time when the other side was demonized yeah yeah and there's a lot of discussion but like you say on both sides about how how to view this what's the ethical way to yeah defend our families to right yeah a wide variety and so and so like somebody like crazy horse i mean crazy horse was a killing machine okay i mean he would go out and 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 he would i mean there's this this um interesting account I got of before the little bighorn after he was deposed as a shirt wearer Mm -hmm. um, he basically honed his skill as a killer of whites so he went to the Black Hills and he would kind of you know lay in wait for any sort of um, any sort of uh, wagon trains or any sort of immigrants and white immigrants into Mm -hmm. the Black Hills and there's this one account of him you know, wiping out alone and by himself, wiping out this um, family of immigrants, and then there was a serving girl who tried to run around, run away, and he hunted her down and killed her too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was, and so for him, the whites were an existential evil, and they weren't human, and he was going to wipe them out. You know, I think that was. I may not have thought specifically in these terms when I wrote that, but I think that um, when I wrote about Black Elk's reactions when he was killing the white soldiers at the Little Bighorn, I mean, I wanted to show how, you know, how he, um, how he differed from that. And I mean, he revered Crazy Horse's second cousin, so, um, you know, so I, so through Black Elk, I mean, you know, you kind of think that um, just with whites, there were all all phases of this sort of bloodlust and all, of, of, of viewing, right. you, you know, viewing what to do. Even Standing Bear, um, you know, who became an important person at Pine Ridge and who was also Black Elk's cousin, mm-hmm. I mean... Standing Bear was more involved in the, was older than Black Elk, and he was more involved in the fight. But he also got kind of sickened by the whole thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's all a very rich kind of ethical discussion. I think you can put through, and it's probably in a probably more of a human way, um, a way to examine uh, mankind as a whole instead of you know one race or the other, uh, or right. one culture or the other. It's the, right. the commonality and the debate in both cultures that. That uh, um, well, as as this then moves on, and as uh, the Black Hills is lost to the Lakota, and um, he, as you mentioned, he he has this uh, kind of amazing cultural opportunity um, to to join Buffalo Bill's 
Wild West show and go off and perform in New York City and then go to England. And you describe, there's a very compelling moment in the book where you describe his, his dance for Queen Victoria. And, and you go through in great detail her, um, her being brought, uh, her movement. You know, as, as somebody like the Queen doesn't just kind of get up and go to the show. She has to. Yeah. And it was a private show. Um, and, and, of course, Buffalo Bill wants this to go very well. And so there's a great deal of effort to make, make sure that the Queen has a nice time. Um, and you describe her, her loss of her husband some decades ago i think she's still in mourning she wore black i think for the rest of her life um yeah this was the the jubilee that she was part of was was i mean there was yeah so much you know so many people came out that this was kind of it was she never ended her mourning but i mean she she kind of she started to come out of of that her deepest despair with this mm-hmm he chooses a dance. I was wondering the Omaha dance. Um, yeah, the grass dance. Or the grass dance. The grass dance. Yeah, the grass dance. I wonder if you dance. can kind of go in what he thought that that would mean, um, why he chose that dance, and what he thought of that um, opportunity to do that for the Queen. Well, I know that he thought. I know that he thought the opportunity to to, to do this for the Queen was a great honor, mm-hmm. and I know that he thought that. He could by um, showing the um, you know the poetry of his of his people's dances um, that that would show her um, you know the poetry of of mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the culture of 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 the Lakota. I mean, you know most um, most white Europeans. I mean, the main thing they knew about Indians were that was that they were warriors and mm-hmm. by then that they had um they had wiped out cult, uh, Custer you know they were yeah. formidable warriors um so i i think that it was important for him to show her that that um the the artistic and cultural side uh, and spiritual side because dance is, dance is always spiritual of uh, of his people and um, and he was impressed. He was always kind of impressed by her. I mean, here's this little roly-poly woman that you know um, can be very kind, could be very kind to people. And um, and she came up to the dancers ev- afterwards, and she spoke to them, and she extended her hand, and he said, you know, she had soft, pudgy little hands, and <laughs> um, and um, and he was he was in, he was impressed. He was both impressed and touched by her. Now the grass dance. There's been a lot of speculation about why why the grass dance was was chosen. I mean, there were some other dances too, but I think the grass dance was the one that, at least in his memoirs, that he focused on on um, the most. And he doesn't really say why he did that, but the grass dance is um, is pretty fluid. Mm-hmm. It's pretty poetic. I mean, you know, the, there's a um, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about where it exactly came from. One theory is that basically the um, you know the, the dancers were trying to mimic the waving of the dance of the grass and mm-hmm. the breeze, which is pretty hypnotic. You know, you I'm sure you've seen that. Um, yeah. um, 
and um, and the grasses in the on the plains were much longer at that time, so they would have rustled, and um, as they as they wove back and forth, so it could be kind of a hypnotic, beautiful sort of dance. It was also, I mean, it wasn't just the Lakota's dance. I mean, it was a dance that was. Um, adapted and used by plains tribes throughout the plains uppers okay. and lo- upper and lower plains and yeah. so and he was probably aware of that um and so i mean since he couldn't speak to her yeah. that well he um he chose something that didn't just express lakota culture but um, um, kind of expressed the entirety of Native American culture, yeah. and I think I, I I think that's one thing that went through his head. Yeah. So um, so I mean he you know and he would think in those sorts of symbolic terms. Right. You know he never really he's never really one to say this is this is why I did this or you know mm-hmm. um, this was my intention except when he's talking about his vision. Um, but, um, you know, as you read these three months, I mean, three weeks' worth of interviews, you can see that he thinks these things through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and she's probably one who thinks things through as well. And according to uh, the, well, the way you write about it in the book, she has a comment for him after the dance is over. And do you recall what, what you... I think I have in my notes here. She she says I I would have treated you better than this or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and it's not yeah. quite clear what what that means. Uh, who the you is, if that's just him in particular, or if it um, how, how did how did he understand those? Uh, was that translated to him from that conversation? Was somebody? Yeah, I think he he understood that it, that if the British had had. Um, still been in charge of America and she were um, ruler at the time that she would not have sanctioned the kind of massacres and and warfare that was that was going on against the Indians at the time I think that's the way he understood it and that's kind of the way that I understood it too Um, so um, um, at least you know, when yeah. when he when he talks about it, that's that's his understanding, yeah. and it made him feel good. I mean, it was yeah. it was also. I mean, there's something kind of bittersweet in that because I mean, right. you know, that's a lost opportunity. Right. Well, and he actually he'd been to Canada. He was up there with Sitting Bull and the group, and they, yeah. they ultimately yeah. have to return. Um, right. Their yeah. life is even imp- more more impoverished there, and there's other tribes right. that are, and the so the queens. What did they call Canada? The the queen, the mother's, uh, or the grandmother's land? Oh, uh, mother, yeah, grandmother's land. Yeah. Grandmother's land. Yeah. So, so grandmother's land. Yeah. So he was and kind they, of in her land, and she still wasn't able to kind of make it. And the Mounties, I mean, there was a real yeah. difference between, you oh, know, yeah. the Mounties and the U.S. Army. And the, Mount, yeah. the Mounties, I mean, they tried to keep the peace, and they didn't, um, you know, while Sitting Bull and his, his various yeah. peoples were there, I mean, they didn't really try to jail them and wipe them out like the U.S. Army was still doing. I mean, the U.S. Army at the same exact time was 
still hunting him across the plains in yeah. revenge for the little bighorn. Right, right. And then he, he uh, <laughs> probably one of the most um, kind of comic things that happens in the book is he misses the boat home. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> I think. I mean, that's one reason why. I mean, you know, he on the altruistic side, he went, he, he went with Buffalo Bill because... You know, he wanted to learn about the the power of the whites. And, right. But he also, I mean, he had a bunch of. I mean, he was twenty years old. He yeah. had a bunch of friends. This was a yeah. this was a road trip. You yeah, know, exactly. And, and then Buffalo Bill was going home, and and they go out partying, and I think they probably got you know they probably got drunk, and yeah. um, and um, they didn't know where they were, <laughs> um, and um, and he misses the boat home, and yeah. he uh, drifts down to London, and and. He may have been interviewed for um, the Whitechapel murders. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something in he, you know, he 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 stays with some, those of his friends in what sounds like in his memoirs, um, um, East London. Yeah, and uh, well, over a rough neighborhood, and it's a rough neighborhood, and um, and he gets into one of those early Buffalo Bill. Um, um, cheap knob- knockoffs. Yeah. Uh, the Mexican Joe show. Yeah. He goes with that for about a year. Um, he had a real adventure, and yeah. um, goes and, to Paris. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. He he learned a lot about yeah. about um, European society. I right. think. Well, and it, it, to skip ahead maybe a bit here, he he, he uh, asked later when he becomes Catholic, he becomes more fascinated with. Um, you know, and his his eyesight is failing. He's he's struggling to read the scriptures. And you make a point at one point, I think, about uh, um, his admiration for Paul's epistles and right. kind of how he's he does write about Paul's epistles in his. Um, he has about oh, I forget maybe about somewhere between twelve and twenty. Um, commentaries that he writes in the Lakota language newspaper. Yeah, and there's only you know there's only a um, not all of them have been discovered, but he keeps mm. he keeps mentioning Paul's epistles over and over again. Yeah. You know, and Paul was bringing the news of Christianity around the um, you know around the Middle East, and so. Um, and so, or Mediterranean, and yeah. so I think in some way that um, that Black Elk could sympathize because he was trying to um, disseminate Christianity around the Na- Native American communities. All right, but he's also and he was well educated too. I mean, he, yeah. he you know, I mean, he he read the entire um, uh, Lakota Bible from cover to cover, and he mm-hmm. could read and speak English, but I just don't think he was very fluid in it. So he yeah. he would act like when when some white guy would come up and start, start speaking to him in English, I get the idea he would just act like he didn't understand English, but it was, a, right. um, you know, it was a way of dealing with people. So, uh, right. But he was a smart guy. Right. Well, and I think the insight of his, his uh, vision... And then, uh, as it, as it be, well, before he goes off to the Wild West show, I think doesn't he reenact his vision with some guidance from some? He does. He he has to sit. Part of the healing for him as a part of the healing for that um, 
nervous break, that panic attack we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, and mm-hmm. also um, and also part of his um, initiation into becoming a uh, holy man is that you have to enact your your visions in dance okay. or in some way. But dance was um, dance was kind of like you know the, the the TV or the written word for for the Plains tribes, and right. so he had to um, he had a particularly hard vision. I mean, he had yeah. up in the clouds he saw thousands and thousands of of you know um, of horses dancing before him, and um, and so. Um, and it was like you know this huge, spectacular, cinematic, um, uh, cinematic um, um, spectacle. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a practical problem: how do you um, how do you stage that? And um, and so he basically got some. Um, there were among the um, the council of holy men that um, that worked with him. I mean, there were some. Um, quite experienced stage managers. I mean, it was almost like they were movie directors in a way, and um, and they helped him um, stage what he called the horse dance, with a bunch of horses that would rush towards this um, towards the sacred tent, and then rush back and rush again and rush back. And there were um, um, everything was the sim- the symbolism was always circular, so there was. Yeah. Um, Outside of this circle of tents, there were other horses that were um, that were, you know, streaming around, ridden by various riders. And um, it sounds, and of course, it was cut back from Black Elk's vision. There couldn't be thousands of horses and thousands of riders, but yeah. but. It sounds like something kind of magical happened, at least in within within his um, within his description. I mean, you know, humans are um, are um, like they're both individual, and they they also have like a um, a group mind, and horses do too. And and I have I've only ridden a horse once, and it wasn't <laughs> a great experience for me, but. People who ride, I mean, you know, they talk about how they, um, um, when they when they ride a, a really special horse, I mean, they kind of become one with their mount. Yeah. And it sounds like um, there was something, there was some sort of um, group psychology going on so that all, both the horses and the people were, um, really got caught up in this vision and it became a kind of a fluid thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, at least that's the way he describes it, and it was um, pretty engaging. Let's let's kind of skip ahead then, I guess, to the conversation that, that uh, who is who is Nyhart? Um, a little background on him, and then let's let's go walk through the production of the book. Okay, so John Nyhart by then was pretty famous. Okay, uh, by the time he met met Black Elk in 1930, he had written a. I forget how many, but he had written at least three, maybe four long epic poems about the um, about the taming of the West, okay. um, usually in rhyming couplets. I mean, these are these are long, long poems, yeah. book-sized poems. 
and um, he'd um, written one about the trappers. He'd written one about the um, the Oregon Trail or the equivalent of the Oregon Trail. He'd written one about um, he'd written one about Crazy Horse and the um, and the Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. And then he um, he wanted to write a fourth. I might be leaving one out, but he wanted to write um, at least a final one, which um, in his mind was about the closing of the frontier. And for him, that would have been the ghost dance and the massacre at Wounded Knee. Right. And he had heard about Black Elk purely because he'd heard that Black Elk and Crazy Horse were second cousins. Okay. Um, and several people before Nyhart talked to Black Elk, several people had come up to Black Elk and had, um, had, and had wanted to um, interview him. But it was always about Crazy Horse, and I get the idea that sometimes it was about what secret places that the Crazy Horse is buried in, and, oh, and yeah. he, didn't, he didn't really want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, Nyhart comes up and he starts, he doesn't really um, launch into Crazy Horse. He, he, he asks him about the ghost dance, and I think that his way of talking to him about the ghost dance is to talk about the spirituality of it. Nyhart had had, Nyhart was a bit of a... Um, of a spiritualist himself. I mean, he would probably be right. called New Age these days. He yeah. had 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 a couple of visions once, um, at least once, when he was really sick himself when he was a right. child. Um, not to the not to the same extent that Black Elk had, but he was very sympathetic about that. And I think that they I think that they could they could talk about that um, you know that kind of experience and. By that point, Black Elk was, um, you know, he was like 60 by then, and he'd see a lot of his friends die, and he pretty much had had, um, come to the conclusion that he wasn't going to be able to save his people either as as an Indian holy man or as a Catholic lay person. By then, he was Mm -hmm. starting to become rather ecumenical. It was a combination of both. Lakota and Catholic, and Nyhart and um, and Black Elk hit it off, and and Black Elk wanted to preserve his vision. He wanted yeah. to preserve his way of life. That was, you know, that was the thing that that would be his legacy. And so he said, "Come back in a year." Black Elk said, "Come back in a year." You know, um, during the summer, I'll have this. Um, teaching space set up, and he did. He had this like tents and everything all set up for Nyhart and wow. his, his girls. Yeah. Um, and they stayed out there a month, and they, um, you know, they had three, three and a half wor- uh, weeks worth of interviews, and then they, um, and then they went to the Black Hills, and then they yeah. went to Harney Peak, and he um, gave his um, a, a prayer for his people twice, once to the north of Pine Ridge in the Badlands. Um, and from the photos, I think I found the approximate place where a photo took place. And then um, 
and then up to Harney Peak. And um, Nyhart went back, and he had it transcribed. Um, no, no, no. Black Elk said come back in a year. So that they, Nyhart went back in 1931, mm-hmm. and um, he got those interviews, and he, then he, his, his daughter transcribed it, and he sent it off to William Morrow, and it was... Um, it was published as Black Elk Speaks, and it didn't do that well. I mean, yeah. it was just too—it was just too weird for the American <laughs> public. I mean, yeah, know, the Depression and, era uh, United States. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, you know, thirty nineteen thirty two. I mean, yeah. it was just too weird, and yeah. um, and it was, um, and it just kind of you know sank. You know, um, nobody really knew about it all that much. Yeah. Um, the Catholic priests and. Pine Ridge knew about it. Yeah, they yeah. they didn't like that. I mean, and, you know, they controlled all the resources, and um, and so there was one priest in particular who gave him a pretty hard time. And yeah. Black Elk denounced the book once, and it seems that he denounced it when he was in a hospital bed, and the priest was by his side, mm-hmm. and Black Elk thought. You know, I mean, there might have been some coercion there. Like, if you don't denounce this, you won't get, you know, you won't get extreme unction or whatever. Um, And, um, but then after that, I mean, um, after that one incident, then the Black Elks and Nyhart were best of friends. And Black Elk and Nyhart would visit, and then Ben would visit and talk about Black Elk Speaks over and over. So, so. In the long run, I think that um, that Black Elk was very pleased with um, with what came out, and that um, you know he felt that this was his legacy that his that his vision had been preserved. Right. And for Nyhart, of course, it was. Um, I mean, it is it is a sad book, and it's a well written yeah. book, and it, it um, even though it's not another long poem in rhyming couplets. I mean, it is a, um, it is about the closing of the frontier. It does exactly what he wanted to do. Yeah. So for him, it was a success, though it was not a financial success, but it did make him quite famous over time. Yeah. Well, and you, in the version that I have, which is published by Nebraska Press, I think uh, it has Philip Deloria's foreword, and he mentions in there how uh, Damali, who you mentioned, um, looking at the notes that were taken and then, and then what Nyhart did with those notes, um, Deloria talks about it's kind of, oh, we shouldn't be so shocked that Nyhart's poetry is kind of layered in or changes some of the words that Black Elk himself said. And so there might have been um, some of that, but you... You kind of treat all that as as maybe I don't know literary license or how would you? Uh, well, one thing I mean, um, yeah, I mean that's you know he's the he I, mean, I I see this as a co-authored book yeah um, and Black Elk speaks as a co-authored book and he was writing for a white audience. Nyhart was writing right. for a white audience and um, and um, Lakota is a poetic language. Yes. You know, I mean, I had my little Lakota dictionary, but it's um, when translated into English, it, it's it, it's it can be awkward. Yeah. So you know, when Nyhart is trying to be poetic, then 
um, then um, you know he has he he has license. I think Demali says that. Now remember that Demali's Demali went into it thinking I'm going to find that um, Nyhart just changed all sorts of things, and I'm going to I'm going to you know roast him. Mm-hmm. But um, but what he ultimately found was that Nyhart's handling of Black Elk's vision and story was um, pretty true to form. He did, Nyhart was trying to make Black Elk more of a universal sort of holy man than just a Lakota holy man, so that when um, when he's talking about, when Black Elk is talking in his vision about you know, wiping out all the whites with the soldier weed and that kind of stuff. I mean, he kind of leaves that out. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't talk about that. Yeah. And that's that seems to be from what I was able to read and also what and and what Demali was saying. And I mean, I used Demali as my guide a lot. Yeah. Um, um, what Demali was saying was that that was Nyhart's major change. Okay. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I mean. You know, if you if you had an exact word for word of Lakota to English, I mean, it, it would, would be, be a mess. Yeah, it would be a mess. And and in order to describe things, Lakota kind of heaps on the adjectives. Yes. And so that wouldn't work for an English translation. Right. You know, where you've got a contract of eighty thousand words or whatever he had. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it all has so. to kind of get funneled through a marketplace, doesn't it? In the end, it does. He uh, does, and he was very well aware of that. I mean, he yeah. was. Um, I don't. I don't think he was cheap about it, but I think he was always very aware of that. Yeah. That, um, and he probably, it probably, you know, his editor William Morrow. I mean, it probably would have been shepherded to um, um, greater fame at that time if William Morrow hadn't died. Oh yeah, yeah. But William Morrow did, and so. So Nyhart didn't really have an advocate right. there in New York, and he was hoping that it would be made into a movie, and it didn't yeah. happen, and it just kind of like lingered until Carl Jung discovered it. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to go there next. So, so Carl Jung kind of discovers it. He's this famous, and at, famous at the time, right? I mean, people knew he was. Who Carl Jung was. He's this. Uh, Psychologist, kind of in the uh, in Austrian, right? Austrian. He was Swiss. Swiss. Oh, I didn't. He was it. Swiss. Yes. So and he spoke in he spoke and write wrote in German. Okay. He was Swiss. Okay. But he's very uh, impressed with the archetype kind of work that Black Elk's vision exposes uh, or, or right. demonstrates, um, and then works to translate it into German and French and get it more widely read, and it becomes kind of more famous in Europe than it does than it is in America at the time. And then the... Yeah, he... Um, I mean, he, he was... He was... You know, by the 1930s, he had already come up with his theories about the universal unconsciousness, which manifests itself in dreams, and he was looking for symbols that seemed to show a, um, a kind of a connection between all of mankind with yeah. these what he called universal archetypes kind of what claude levy strauss did later with his you know structuralist type of stuff i mm-hmm. mean the, the, um and um he was giving some um 
lectures at Yale, I think it was, in like 1932, 33, 35, something like that. Um, and somebody brings up this book and says, you got to look at this thing. And so he reads it, and he's crazy about it, and he mm-hmm. wants to take it back to Germany, and he, I mean, take it back to Switzerland, have it translated into, um, into German, and then along comes the war, and that kills that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not able to have it, but he never forgets it, and he's, he's, he's not able to have it translated until about 1954, 1955, and he's bragging about it big time. And, um, and at that point, as often happens, you know, American scholars say, hey, oh, oh hey, look, Carl Jung says yeah. this American <laughs> story is really worth look, looking at. It's uh-huh. not just some weird Indian story. And so, um, and so it gets republished in 1961 or two. Uh-huh. in the United States, but it doesn't really take off until around 67, 68 with the, um, with the publication of D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And he uses, and D. Brown um, uses Black Elk Speaks as a lot of his source material. He doesn't use Damali stuff, but he does yeah. use Black Elk Speaks. Yeah. Well, and D. Brown uses that, and... Uh, uh Vine Deloria Jr. uses that oh, yeah. and kind of makes that uh, a part of what becomes a lifetime for Vine Deloria is, is explaining Native uh, religious practices and beliefs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people really profit from Nyhart's and right. Black Elk's work. And I, I, I read a lot of Vine Deloria, too, to kind of understand what was going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I understood when I was doing this that this was not my culture and that I had to try to enter into that, um, you know, that, that way of looking at things. And uh-huh. so, um, and so, I mean, you know, I would, I would read. I mean, after 1968, of course, and then with, you know, Vine Deloria being the scholar that he was, I mean, um, and good writer that he was, um, I mean, there were a lot more Native American voices out there yeah. that were being published, so it was, a, it was possible to start to, you know, see the world as, as, as the Lakota did, at least to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, and, well, you, you mentioned that you, you recognize this is not your culture. Toward the end of the book, you say... Um, uh, let me get the quote here. Washington, meaning the United States federal government, Washington has never succeeded in stamping out what made them Indian because it never knew. Uh, uh, it was particularly insightful and and concise in the the strategic dilemma or the the faults that commonly occur to this day uh, in, yeah. in communication between the two cultures. Is that there's. Um, a dearth of listening and an awful lot of shouting going on. Uh, yeah, yeah, often, so. I think that still goes on. Yeah. You know? So, um, so it was, it was, it was really interesting to me when I went out there. I mean, I, you know, I spent about two and a half, two, two and a half months. So I live in Virginia, mm-hmm. so I spent about two, two and a half months going to all these archives, all these sites. I spent a um, week, week and a half out at Pine Ridge, talking to people, and kind of camped out at the. Um, Library and archives of um, um, the Oglala Lakota 
um, oh, yeah. and oh, I want to give a shout out to the uh, three or four librarians and archivists there. They were yeah. wonderful. They they even yeah. fed me at times. Um, and <laughs> um, I mean, I just tried to. They pointed me to talk to different people, including Betty Black Elk, and yeah. um, I was trying to do as much justice to a different way of thinking as I could. Mm-hmm. So, and I think for a writer that that's, that's really important. Well, Joe, thanks a lot for being on History 605 today. We really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you well in your next project, which I think is about the um, war in the American-Philippine uh, War. Yeah, the, the Spanish and Philippine-American War. Yeah. And actually it's about told from all three points of view and it's about ah. what what you know kind of the, the development of of a national character okay so, so and by the three points of view you mean spain the united states and the philippines no uh cuba philippines oh. and the united states okay okay so we were cuba and the philippines were the yeah. ones that we were supposed to liberate and yeah. came away hating us so um, yeah so yeah well, in the so I got the first draft done on that, and I'm okay. scrunching it down to the second draft, just like I did with Black Elk. I overwrote, just like I did on Black Elk, so I'm scrunching it down. Oh, yeah. Do you have the first South Dakota? Are they going to make the final cut? Um, the first South Dakota I, goes to the Battle of Manila. Yeah, well, they're in there. They're in there. Um, yeah. I pay a lot of attention to... Um, I pay a lot of attention to this guy by the name of Frederick Funston, yeah, who was in from Kansas. Yep, yep. And he kind of went from being a guerrilla in Cuba, he fought as a guerrilla in Cuba, to somebody who hunted down and tortured guerrillas in the Philippines, and right. I found that really interesting. Yeah. He is so. an interesting character, so I'm glad you're spending some time on him. Yes, he is. Yeah. Well, Joe, thanks a lot, uh, and uh, look forward to your next project. Thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. It was a lot of fun. Good. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.